Russia continues uh, violation of international law and human rights. Well, it couldn't really be much worse, their behavior, could it? There are also steps uh, which always can be worse. Why was the EU so ill-prepared? This is one of the most uh, complicated issues for uh, European foreign policy. Is there any point in pushing ahead with enlargement plans? The perspective to get membership is uh, also very important. When it comes to foreign policy, it's getting harder to work out what the EU stands for. Too many disagreements among members, too many grand intentions and fine words, too little to show for them. My guest this week is Ulmas Pait, Vice Chair of the European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, and he joins me from Strasbourg. Can he explain why such a powerful block of nations seems to punch so far below its weight on the world stage? Ormas Pait, welcome to Conflict Zone. Hello. Let's start, if we may, with Russia, which presents uh, a number of key uh, foreign policy challenges to the EU. Since uh, the seizure of Crimea, the EU has imposed a huge variety of sanctions on Moscow. Can you think of any way in which those sanctions have, to any degree, changed Moscow's behavior? Well, uh, if, if you look at the history of sanctions uh, uh, globally, then it's of course always an issue how much and how fast uh, sanctions uh, will have its influence. And what concerns Russia, then yes, we have seen that so far there has been no immediate or direct influence because Russia continues uh, violation of international law and human rights, be it uh, in the Ukraine, be it uh, in, in Russia, be it in some other third places. But there is also always question uh, what is or what should be an alternative if uh, one country systematically and harshly violates international law and human rights. So that, um, yeah, the yeah, impact, so, so, uh, immediate impact. Uh, yeah, so for the time being, the sanctions have been useless. And my, my question is really, what's the point of continuing ta to take measures that have no effect? Um, is it to make people in the EU feel better about it? Well, part of politics always is also that, uh, well, public opinion should approve the steps. Uh, but uh, there is also an issue that if you these days just stop sanctions without anything really has been changed in Russian behavior, uh, then it's also the issue of, of EU's credibility. So that politically it's also impossible just to skip sanctions uh, without anything really has happened. Yeah, so not only did you not change Russia's behavior, you haven't managed really to mitigate the effects of it either, have you? For example, there was talk of reaching out to supporting civil society in Russia. Um, that avenue has also been closed off by the Russians since they've um, clamped down on a lot of civil society. So that's not working either, is it? Well, here I clearly disagree. I think that uh, Russian civil society, uh, part of it is unfortunately abroad, uh, well, has got a lot of political, moral, but also financial support uh, from European countries. Plus also there is the issue when we speak about sanctions, we don't know what could and would be Russian behavior without uh, the reaction of, of West, of, of the Europe, of the United States. Uh, because unfortunately always it also well can be worse. So that in this regard I also don't see real alternative 
to the well, European and Western action and behavior vis-a-vis -vis Russian violation of, of human rights and rule of law. Well, it couldn't really be much worse, their behavior, could it? I mean, they've invaded a sovereign state. Uh, they kill their political opponents on European territory. Um, they hack into your election systems. Um, what could actually be worse? They're, they're signaling, if such a thing is possible, that these sanctions don't matter a jot to them, aren't they? They're going ahead with their disruptive behavior. Well, uh, I, I will not elaborate here, and I guess that uh, you understand very well that, well, there are also steps uh, which always can be worse, because I remember before 2014, there were also majority, I guess, Western politicians who said that it will never happen, that, that Russia will attack its neighbors. Well, it happened 2014. Uh, so that to say today that it cannot be worse, well, unfortunately, it can. You've been extremely critical of the EU's foreign policy chief, uh, Josep Borrell. You called his visit to Moscow in February a colossal failure. The Commission, by contrast, expressed full support for it. Who are we supposed to believe? Was it a success or a failure? Well, this concrete visit was failure because the timing was very, very bad. And it was uh, already foreseen that nothing good cannot come out from this visit. So that in this sense, I clearly understand, I support uh, that also during difficult times, the dialogue and conversation is important, but uh, it's always that timing matters. And the timing for this particular visit, especially to Moscow, was, was very bad. And also the place for meetings was, was not the best one. Uh, I guess that uh, if you start or you restart the contacts and dialogue, then you first should choose uh, more neutral places for this kind of of visits and also, well, you should choose appropriate timing in this regard. And of course, the messages. The messages should be uh, much clearer and stronger in this regard and, of course, based on the well, common approach from 27 EU member states. Well, Mr. Burrell said he went to challenge uh, Russia's behavior um, with regard to human rights. Um, to see if they would engage on the issue. He came back saying they wouldn't. Um, what more could he have done? He tried. He tried, he failed. It wasn't worth trying. Well, I, I don't think that uh, he had to go uh, with, with any expense. Once again, I think that the timing for this particular visit uh, was very bad. So that uh, I guess that uh, uh, different timing, maybe also some different, uh, well, messages uh, could and should be, uh, well, better role and, and, and give maybe some better outcome. Although, yeah, we all know that uh, Russia at the moment has no interest at all to improve the relations with the Western democracy. So that in this regard, we also should understand that for real developments, uh, there should be also some change of thinking in, in Russia. And it is not happening at, at this very moment. And if there's no change in thinking, and uh, as you say, there isn't, so, so what are you left with? There's one kid on the block who wants to play nice, and that's you, and the other one doesn't. You're left looking pretty weak, by contrast, aren't you? No, I, I don't think so. I, I also don't think that Russia is the only player in the world. I think that at this stage, uh, EU uh, has to clearly strengthen uh, relations with the United States, also with the United Kingdom, with other uh, democratic countries. And uh, 
we, we all together, I mean the Western democracies, have to keep much more adequate balance point globally, where on the one side at the moment are Western democracies and the, on the other side uh, big authoritarian regimes like China, Russia and, and some others. So that I guess that it, at this stage uh, EU also has to concentrate much more on uh, strengthening uh, real functioning relationship with, with US and other democracies. Well, perhaps it should concentrate more on uh, strengthening relationships within the bloc itself, because the biggest drawback for the EU is your chronic disunity, isn't it? You've written about this yourself. This dream of a common foreign policy is rapidly drawing to an end. Isn't it time to admit that? Oh, certain steps which I would like to see. First, uh, different foreign policy diplomacy. Um, foreign trade, development cooperation, also defense policy, they should work uh, much more together. And secondly, I think that we also don't have to need uh, any more consensus in each and every foreign policy uh, decision. For example, issues related to human rights and sanctions based on human rights, I don't think that we need here consensus. So that this is also time to increase the efficiency of European foreign policy. Yes, but I mean, we've had a prime example of disunity just recently when France and Germany proposed restarting summits with Moscow, which have been suspended since 2014. And that led to howls of protest among other member states because no one else had been consulted. So not only do you have consultation issues, you have disunity issues, which are ensuring that the EU, the largest trading bloc in the world, punches consistently below its weight on the international stage, doesn't it? Well, that's why I say that we also have to, well, a uh, little bit change the mechanism of decision making in also foreign and security policy issues. But what concerns French and German uh, proposals, then, well, I, I think that every and each country can make proposals. But yeah, then the European Council, where all 27 are uh, present, is the place where then they decide what is right to do and, and what's not at this very moment. So that actually I don't blame uh, German and, and French governments for making this proposal because what we also have seen now during these last years when all the meetings between EU and, and Russia have been suspended we have seen that some EU member states have had and still having bilateral uh, meetings and then they don't uh, represent EU's common positions so that in this regard to avoid uh, well this situation I guess that also certain contacts uh, and, and well, also meetings between EU and, and Russia anyway are necessary. But here again, uh, the timing is important, the agenda is important, and of course also clear political well, basis and political commitment from all member states. And doing something that makes a difference, which we haven't seen so far, doing something that actually changes Russia's behaviour. Well, I guess this is anyway a very difficult, uh, difficult uh, target because uh, if there is no political willingness in Russia to change uh, their attitude vis-à-vis -vis West and vis-à-vis -vis, uh, well, human values, uh, rule of law and so on, then anyway from abroad it is also very difficult to influence. And we also should realize that, well, big authoritarian regimes like Russia and China are making more and more cooperation because, uh, well, the same issues of human rights and international law, they don't bother them. So that uh, here also we should not, in this sense, be naive and blame only ourselves. 
but here also the well the real political will or absence of, of this will also matters. Well, I mean, you've written yourself that um, the strength of the EU comes from unity. Um, that disunity was on show during the recent fighting in the Middle East between the Palestinians and Israel, when the EU failed even to issue a unanimous statement on the conflict because it was blocked by Hungary. Not even a, uh, you can't even unify over a statement, never mind doing anything that makes a difference to the situation on the ground. That ha that's pretty shameful, isn't it? <laughs> That's why I say that uh, I guess we have to shift from a consensus from every and each issue to some majority voting to increase the level of efficiency of the EU's foreign policy. And uh, well, we also should realize that well, EU is not a single country. It is 27 countries and we all can imagine that it is not the easiest uh, duty or, or aim to get uh, always the same language from 27. No, but you uh, so have plenty of people. especially some sensitive issues like Middle East. Yeah, yeah. but Mr. Mr. Pied, you have plenty of people sitting around talking about policy. Um, the, the conflict in the Middle East isn't new. Surely somebody should have been prepared what, to, to force particular kinds of actions when the next bout of fighting broke out. But they didn't do that. My question is, why was the EU so ill-prepared to do something in this instance in the Middle East, as it has been on previous instances. You don't seem to learn from any lessons. Well, already, I guess, the unfortunate fact that the conflict in the Middle East is not new already shows that it is a very uh, complex and complicated issue. And uh, I would say that actually this is one of the most uh, complicated issues for uh, European foreign policy, but also for foreign policy in many other countries in the world. And you can imagine that if there are 27 and you have split in opinions, not only between the governments, but also inside the member states, then it is very difficult really to reach consensus so that all the complexity and, and all the sensitivities what concerns Middle East uh, uh, conflict, well, yes, are reflected also in, in EU foreign policy making so that uh, I admit, this is one of the most uh, difficult issues and actually I also don't foresee that in foreseeable future there will be overwhelming and, and large consensus about these issues. But, but is it enough for people in the EU like you and senior officials to just say, oh, it's a difficult issue and wring your hands and, and wait for the next disaster to strike? in which you won't be able to play any kind of role and you'll just be left by the side of the road watching. Um, the former Jordanian Foreign Minister Marwan Mwasha says the EU's become passive, accepting a status quo that it doesn't even want. That's true, isn't it? You don't want the current situation, but you haven't well, got any ideas for fixing it. Well, I guess that uh, in, in some issues uh, globally, uh, also in immediate uh, neighborhood of Europe, uh, EU's foreign policy has been quite successful. When we speak, for example, about supporting well, democratic uh, movements, be it Georgia, be it Ukraine, be it some other countries, where I, also if, if we look at the changes in, uh, in Western Balkans and, and so on and so on. And then, yes, you also can, of course, find examples where it's really difficult to make difference and even to reach consensus in the EU, the same Middle East issue. So it is, and, and as long as EU is not one country, but the combination of 27 at this stage, uh, well, 
it also remains like this, that not in all foreign policy issues you easily can reach uh, very uh, brilliant consensus or, or you can push forward very brilliant ideas uh, where the uh, united position of, of EU member states is, is really strong. So that uh, if you look at the Middle East, then yes, it lasted already decades and decades, but it's not only the European Union. Also, no other uh, country came out with the solution with, which really can be helpful. So that, that's why this is really you, sensitive and, and, and complex and problematic issue. You talk about progress in the West Balkans with, with all the disruptions spreading inside the EU. Is there any point in pushing ahead with enlargement plans there? Um, don't you have enough problems without importing feuds and organized crime and the drug and people trafficking and smuggling from the West Balkans? They don't seem to be making a lot of progress in cracking down on organized crime there, do they? For all the progress that you talk about. Well, I think, I think that patience in this sense is needed because if we compare where were the majority, for example, of Eastern European countries in early 1990s and where they are these days, it was not the issue of one or, or two years, it was the issue of a couple of decades. And in this sense, in the future, I also see the same kind of development uh, with remaining Western Balkan countries which are not in the EU yet, that the perspective to get membership is um, also very important uh, to really implement all these changes so that um, when we speak about Serbia or Bosnia-Herzegovina or, or any other country after 20 or 30 years, then we really will see that uh, EU, EU's perspective, membership perspective has really made difference. Well, I mean, you talk about that. You take, take Bulgaria and Romania, for instance. They had to be put under special monitoring for more than 10 years because of... Uh, problems with rule of law issues, problems with massive corruption, which persists to this day. Um, that hasn't been any picnic for the rest of Europe, having Bulgaria and Romania, um, and, and the amount of crime that it generates and the amount of corruption that both countries generate on your doorstep. That hasn't been a great gift, has it? <laughs> uh, again, I think that uh, without this European Union perspective and without European Union mem membership, uh, I think also the risks for the rest of Europe have been much, much larger. And well, you mentioned Romania-Bulgaria, which, which are one of the freshest EU member states. Well, but uh, with all modesty, look at my own country, Estonia. If I look back uh, 30 or 25 years and if I think about Estonia today, I still think that it has been also a great achievement of Europe. Uh, that, uh, well, they took Estonia. And, and we managed to join, and, and if you look at all the changes. But of course, it, it takes time, because uh, all what happened with these particular countries in Eastern Europe, they didn't happen within a couple of years, they happened within half a century. 50 years of, of how to say, wrong history. And now to imagine that everything can be fixed within a couple of years, well, it's illusion. But uh, it will happen, but it, it will take time. Mr. Pied, how worried are you about the news this week that parties of the far right have formed an alliance against Brussels, saying they'll fight for what they call national sovereignty and try to prevent a European state? These are 16 parties from 15 countries in the European Union in a direct challenge to the rules that they signed up to when they acceded to the European Union. That's hardly progress, is it? 
Well, I, I'm not worried uh, because we have seen this kind of slogans and attempts also during previous years. But right this is more than President slogans, Trump isn't won it? Elections in this United is more than slogans. I mean, they, they managed to bring no, business in the EU to, so to a standstill in certain areas, don't they? No, I, I disagree. So far, it's only slogans. And we have seen these slogans also during previous years. Because you, if you look at these concrete uh, political parties, then they are very different. Uh, some parties are very pro-Russian, some are very much against Russia, uh, some parties want to very strong involvement of the state in, in economy, S some other parties they don't want. So that in subs from substance actually they are very, very different and it also has been the reason why so far they didn't manage to unite their forces. So that's well, one why of, one I of the things that does that, unite well, them. One of the things that does unite them is the issue of migrants, which has been particularly divisive for the EU. And I think that actually majority of citizens in Europe, they are very worried about uh, migration issues. Uh, starting from this, that why people at all have to leave their, their homeland. Uh, in this sense, it's, it's very human and, and in, in lots of cases, human tragedy. Uh, so that uh, I guess that majority of people in Europe, in this sense, don't want to see that people will have to leave their homes and, and start the life of refugee. But Mr. So Pipe, it's not perhaps, only about how to say. Yes, Mr. Pipe, perhaps the most dis yeah? disappointing aspect which human rights groups underlined last month is how the EU has failed to safeguard people against serious human rights violations at its external borders. The spotlight has fallen on the EU's border agency Frontex, which is accused by Human Rights Watch of failing repeatedly to take action over allegations of human rights violations. That's a serious issue, isn't it? It's exposed deep fault lines in the values that all member countries were supposed to sign up to. Hasn't that been a major disappointment for you? Well, for me, the, the big disappointment actually is that we still have the situation that uh, there are lots of people who have to leave their homes and they, they well, have chosen the way to, to be a refugee. So that, uh, once again, I think that Europe, but also other uh, strong countries in the world, they have to do everything uh, that, that people simply don't have to leave their homes. But if already there are refugees, then of course you have to well handle this. You have to handle that people who have uh, well the right for protection, they should get it, and people who don't have this right, they well should be returned. Yes, but, it, in but this the, sense, of course, it's the, way, EU... it's the way they are being treated at the European Union's borders by the border agency Frontex. This is what has attracted a lot of attention from the human rights and a lot of human rights groups and a lot of criticism as well. Um, they're Frontex, the border agency, is accused of failing repeatedly to take action over allegations of human rights violations. Why is that and why is it allowed? Well, of course, uh, all this kind of uh, violations of, of existing laws and rules, they should not happen. Uh, so that in this sense, I also hope that uh, be it Frontex or be it any other uh, organization has to have its, its lessons learned so that this kind of thing should not happen again. But we also should understand that, well, for many people, for many organizations, including Frontex, uh, last years they have been very fast and rapid development. Uh, there are, have been lots of changes in their organization and lots of changes in situation. But that of doesn't course, justify it is, mistreatment, uh, not excuse, does it? Uh, to concrete. That doesn't justify mistreatment. Uh, absolutely not. And, and uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
but I think that our perspective also should be to the future so that all these mistreatments and violations, uh, they should be uh, investigated uh, so that they will not happen again. Because, yeah, I, I agree that all this kind of stuff where people have been treated badly or, or against the law, well, they should never happen again. Is it any wonder then that with these things happening that so many in Europe feel that the European project is in serious trouble? Last month there was new polling and research by the European Council on Foreign Relations which showed that majorities in France, Germany, Italy, Spain and Austria now judge the EU to be broken. In France the figure was just over 60%. Aren't you worried by these high levels of dissatisfaction with the functioning of the EU? Well, I haven't seen these figures. My last figures were a bit more optimistic. But anyway, of course, this is every day's work to explain why still it is important that European countries are together and make cooperation. Because what is an alternative? If uh, every and each uh, well, European country will be on its own uh, in today's world, uh, nobody really can balance, be it China, be it Russia, uh, also other big players. So that if you look from economic point of view, if you also look from security point of view, personal freedoms point of view, then I didn't, I personally didn't discover any real alternative to, to the present situation. But of course, it needs explanation. It needs also work with public opinion. Well, Mas Pait, it's been good to have you on Conflict Zone. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.